Amen. He truly is our deliverer. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me again to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the next paragraph, but I want to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 9a, I'll call it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. The Word of God says to us today, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And for the study today, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Amen. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we come to you in our weakness. Lord, we come to you in need. For those who have been raised with Christ, who have died with him, who have been buried with him, and now know know the newness of life, the resurrection life, Lord, that you have not only promised but made active within our souls. God, we seek now the grace to enable us to obey these very serious commands that you've put before us today through your servant Paul. Father, help us to realize that we are in a battle and that we need your armor. We need your clothing. We need your grace. But, Father, we need ears to hear. We need eyes to see. We need the examination of your word by your spirit to do its work in us today, Father, so that we in Christ will be victorious. So, Lord, we are weak in our flesh, but we are strong and mighty through Christ. So we ask that your Spirit do your work within us today, that your word would go forth in power to the glory of your name, to the strengthening of our souls in him, Lord, that you will be glorified that many 
through our word, through our life, would be brought into your kingdom. I ask for your spirit's unction and power. In Jesus' name, amen. We are not told in the scriptures about the moment in time when when within the, the newly created realm, before the earth was formed, before man was created, but in the midst and the presence of God's resplendent glory, where in the throne room of the heavenlies and the fullness of worship and praise, in the very presence of the radiance of the eternal exaltation of the triune God, there arose when there was found in the affections of one of the chief created beings a secret atheism. The rising of that first covetous thought of wicked and vile inclination of self-exaltation, and at that seminal moment of greed and evil desire, there was in an immeasurable passage of time, so very short in duration. But there occurred the immediate eradication, the casting down, the exercise, a divine warfare against this insidious spiritual cancer called sin, and wrath declared against all its inhabitants. However, we do know from Scripture that when our father Adam and his wife Eve were deceived by the cunning of sin through the words and that initial perversion of truth by the serpent in Eden, then all of the created order, all of mankind from that time forward were now cursed, were permeated by this wicked depravity going from all that was declared by God to be very good in creation, now being corrupted and in bondage within only able to express evil in word and deed, all of whom are in now dire need of rescue, of salvation, of restoration. We also know from scriptures what sin is, how it manifests itself in our old nature and our bodies. We see it at work within the world around us. And as we, as born-again Christians, understand that the law of sin within us is making war within us against the very Spirit of God that has taken up residence in the new heart of the believer. For David says in Psalm 51.5 that since our first father Adam has sinned, we are all now brought forth in iniquity, and we are all conceived in sin. No one, no one can escape its presence in this life nor can we escape its final payment, and that being death. We will all die. That's a given. Although for the Christian, its bondage, praise God, its power are broken through Christ. We are yet never free from it until we are taken home, either through death in this body or raptured at the final return of Christ. But these realities for us as believers in Christ are not a cause for despair. It is not a reason to give up. We are not to raise the white flag and call it quits, nor are we to call call to passively disregard sin's remaining presence within us. 
No, it, it is for us as believers a call to war. But it is a war that has already been won in and through Christ. Because we know from Scripture sin is temporary. It has been defeated. It will be ultimately eradicated and done away with. And as we will see in today's scripture, Paul is issuing a very serious and compelling call to the believer. And he uses a very unpopular idea and term these days. It's a call to kill, to kill sin, to fight, to put it to death, to mortify it in our flesh. And please note, this is an individual call. Not a call to look at other sins. Not a look, even look at how others might wrong us or what is wrong with the world, or what is wrong with the church, but a call to examine our very own heart. And while it may seem strange for us to read and consider, as we did last week, that for someone who has been given eternal life, we're now called to live the risen life in Christ, that we are now being commanded to kill sin, to put sin to death. So to better explain this and to make sense of these two therefore statements that Paul has given us, we have to keep our hearts and minds fixed on these foundational truths that Paul has given us. Paul is addressing this letter to believers in Colossae and to those here present today at Heritage Grace. And he addresses us in his prayer as those who have faith in Christ, And by the work of the Spirit in revealing Christ to us through his gospel, we are those now bearing fruit in some measure. In love for the Lord, for the brethren, we are growing in wisdom and understanding in Christ. We are those who are hopefully, prayerfully striving to walk worthy of the Lord and his calling, striving in every avenue of our life to please him to bear fruit through every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul attributes all this to Christ, as we must. He is the image of the invisible God. He rules over all created order, over all invisible and visible realms. Through Through Christ, who is the ruler over our new family, the church, he who is our head, who has to have the first place in everything from our hearts unto the final reconciliation of all things to himself, both in judgment and in reward. In other words, Paul is reminding us of our being established, what we just talked about in Sunday school, being firmly rooted in Christ, as those being built up more and more upon his sure foundation, as those who, when knocked down in trial and afflictions in life, rise up in him, in his righteousness, stronger, purposeful in our pursuit of him, as those who are guarding our hearts from the deceptions of this world and the false teachers through the truth and the fullness that is found in Christ alone. All of this, every aspect of this, is made possible, is made real, is being made in an ever-increasing depth of richness in our lives because of Christ's death on the cross. As we said, his death was my death. His death was your death. His burial was my burial, was your burial. His resurrection was my resurrection. He was your resurrection. 
And there is now no longer any condemnation against us in the forensic court of the Most High God. And since his resurrection is our resurrection, because of all this, not in order to gain all this, what we're going to study is not in order a means to gain all of this life in Christ, but because of what Christ has done, my life will now be one of seeking the things above, of setting my mind on things above, where my beloved Redeemer is, in the fullness of his authority, of his ruling love over my heart and life, where he is living to make intercession for me, where he is even preparing a place for me in the heavenlies, and where he dispatches the truth of his word to my heart as revealed by his spirit. And now Paul is is continuing with this theme, built upon this basis of all that Christ has done for us. And he continues on with the next realized outworking, the natural pursuit by the Spirit in the believer's heart. Therefore, put to death. This is what is considered the, the negative side to a radical call to holiness. For the disciple of Christ who is in Christ and pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness does not or should not see this as something novel or something new or something optional. It's not so with Paul in this passage. It immediately in perfect inspired order follows his instructions here. And we've read through, we know through the Old Testament, the revelations of God's own holiness and the commanded ethical instructions specifically to God's people of whom he has already called and a call that results in a life of holiness and obedience to his word. This, this present enjoyment and outworking of his eternal life within us. This serious intrusion of the kingdom of God within time upon earth and in our hearts includes this radical call to a life of holiness. As I said, it's not optional. The Lord Jesus Christ personally expressed this himself in Matthew five twenty-seven to 30. Please turn over there with me briefly. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. These are Christ's words during during his his intimate sermon on the mount with his disciples. One very powerful example in this radical call to holiness. He says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we should note very carefully here, Christ himself is not advocating, as some has perverted over the, over the ages, according to man's traditions, but Christ is not advocating literal self-mutilation 
in any sense. But rather, Christ is speaking very clearly to us about the seriousness of sin and its effects and its consequences. But he's also calling us to a drastic, radical action in the way we are to deal with it. Does this sound in any way like an optional, passive aspect of those who are called to follow Christ? Who are called to daily, what? Take up your cross, lay down your life, and follow him. This is not optional. This is not a higher level of Christianity only for some. It's not just for the officers of the church or for a pastor. It is for everyone who has who has submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ. Very sadly, in many Christian circles today, not only has the, the language, just the talk of holiness, slipped and given way to pleasure and entertainment and status, but with greater sadness, the concept of holiness has seemed to have vanished as well. Many who call themselves Christians embrace lifestyles that are nearly indistinguishable from the neighbors who make no such claim about Christ or holiness or God. Apart from the fact that these Christians go to church on somewhat of a regular basis, their lives, their values, their priorities, their moral conduct, at least behind the moral facade they put up, are little different from their non-Christian counterparts. Nothing in their thoughts, nothing in their attitudes, nothing in their life separates them from a world that has no time for God. However, we as, as being set apart from the world is what lies at the very heart of what the Bible says about holiness. We read in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 13 to 16, he says, Therefore, another therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our call to holiness and entrance into the spiritual warfare against sin is not without help. It's not without support, without strength, without equipping. It is done according to Paul's instruction to us in Romans 8.13 by yielding, by submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit's presence and power within us. It is not by flesh. It is not by might. It is not by our own natural wisdom. It is not by my strength. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit and submitting ourselves to his Spirit, crying out for the help of that Spirit, the promises of God that with every temptation, he will provide for you that way of escape. Do we believe this? Do we, do we follow through with this? Or do we simply give in and, and allow that sin to fester and boil and see it conceived and bring forth? It's work. We know sin's power can still be strong and potent. In our flesh, our remaining natural state is weak toward it. That's, that's a reality. We can picture sin, though, like a wicked leader who's been dethroned. 
he's been banished from his kingdom. But yet he still has its goal to, to condemn, to use his various means of, of guerrilla warfare, if you will, and deceptions and debilitate and try to devastate us, seeking to destroy us. Because of its potency, because of sin's remaining potency in our bodies, it demands the power of the Spirit to be at work in our lives. Now, I must reiterate the impact of this active truth for the believer. This is not optional in our lives. If we are in Christ, it is to be the outworking, the voluntary, the strenuous effort and exertion of the blood-blot disciple who has been raised up with Christ. Richard Baxter said from the book, A Puritan Golden Treasury, you might want to add that to your reading list, he says, quote, Use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. And though it bring you to the grace as it did your head, it shall not be able to keep you there. So in the example of Christ's command to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him, and in Paul's example, he spoke to the Corinthian church, I die daily. Let's look closely at the charge put forth today in today's text. And I want you to see these, as I said earlier, let them examine you individually. Let them, as the word of God, probe your heart. These are our enemies. Flesh and blood is not our enemies, our enemy. Political powers are not our enemies. The stock market is not our enemy. Nothing in this world is our enemy. Satan, the unseen force, the power that we don't see, but more importantly, more devastating, more destructive, is our remaining sin within us. Yes, it has been dethroned, but yes, it is still out to seek and destroy. So verse 5, let's look at the first part of this. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now Paul continues through the use of therefore as his link between what we read earlier, the doctrine and practice, and here he is, he's still linking the command this practical outworking of killing sin back to the doctrine found in the truths of the previous four verses and all the way back to chapter 2, verse 20. Those truths that since you are of those who have shared in the death and resurrection of Christ, your lives are now hidden with him in God and will one day be revealed with Christ in glory. Therefore, you are to be living like new men and women and you are to be killing sin. Sadly, the NASB chose to use or translate the word here, necrosate, as consider or reckon. It's a little weak. In its lexical form, necro means dead. This verse is is better or or more accurately translated according to the original language as put to death. Therefore, put to death. And this is the only instance where Paul uses this term in this sense, and the sense here is a second person aorist active. What in the world does that mean? 
It means for us, this is, this is the beauty of the original language, it means for us that there must be for you a decisive initial act introducing a settled attitude or outcome. You must put to death present. It is continuing to happen. Put to death the members of your earthly body. Again, Christ did not, Paul is not advocating asceticism in any form or any kind of self-mutilating penance. What he is after in this putting to death is this ongoing elimination of all the things in this life and of this earth, what is earthly, what is contrary to godliness, what is contrary to holiness. And he also uses a very powerful parallel in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, where he says to the church, the believers in Rome, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you, what, must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a week of sermons in those two verses, but we're not going to dive into there right now. But another way of saying this with the same force is that we must not owe anything to the flesh. We are not in debt to the flesh to that old, rebellious, insubordinate, autonomous, self-sufficient nature that we all have. We know nothing to the flesh except enmity, war, and death. We're not to play and dally with our destroyer. We owe it nothing, and we are not to pay it to our own destruction. We are to do what is unpopular, and it may even be unsettling for some, Even though this world makes light of and seeks to entertain us with death these days, we see here Paul's powerful language and how we are to deal with sin in our lives while we are still in the world and in these bodies as believers called to holiness. Paul's use of necrosate here is the fullness of the meaning and work of what we call commonly from John Owen and others, the mortification of sin. It's not just to shame it or suppress it, but a desire to restrain it to such a degree as to see it as our greatest enemy and seek its death in light of who we are in Christ and what he did to defeat it in us. Now, Paul continues with this exhortation with, therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, this command carries with it a use of metonymy where where Paul is speaking of putting to death the members of your body as dead. And what he's referring to here is the actual sin associated with those members, that which is earthly, what is exercised through our physical bodies. In Romans 7.23, Paul speaks of the law of sin which is in my members, And in this passage, he goes even further to practically identify the reader's members with the sins of which they were formerly the instruments. And Ritterboss says that the members are here identified with the sins committed by these members, which in a similar connection in Romans 8.13, as we read, are called the deeds of the body. So sin's desire, its intent is to outwork from the heart, from within, from that hidden area within us, out through our members. 
through our hands, through our feet, through, through all of the organs that God has created and given us to destroy and to deceive and to harm. And this is not speaking here of dualism, where, where the soul of man is good and above and the body of man is below and bad. No, Paul tells us we are to present our bodies, right? Our entire beings as what? Instruments of righteousness. Our bodies are intended to do, by the grace of God, by the indwelling spirit, to do good deeds, to carry out good works that have been what? Predestined for us to do. The use and the meaning here of members, which goes in two words, mele geis, it goes beyond its, its ordinary sense to grasp the various kinds of sin which were committed by their means in which the old nature, the sin nature, expressed itself actively, outwardly, from the heart outward. So the true putting to death of the various kinds of sin or what is earthy, earthly in these members exercised in our body is what we can call the true mortification in the context of Colossians 3.5. But it also has to do with a transformation of our will, a new attitude of mind, much like what we read from Paul in in Romans 6.11, or what we read from Paul in Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead, but alive to God through in Jesus Christ. True mortification of sin has has been described like this from an Anglican theologian, H. Mole. He says, A radical shifting of the very center of the personality from self to Christ, such that death or putting to death the selfishness, the a.k.a. the pride, the idolatry, is by no means too strong of a description for us. The reason we are to deal with sin in such a serious and severe manner is because, he says, it is earthly. It is of the earth. It is of the fallen realm. And Paul has already warned us in chapter 3, verse 2, to not set our minds upon the things that are on the earth, those things that are earthly, those things that are part of the fallenness of this earth, part of the rebellion against God, against Christ, against the Spirit and His Word, and against the church. For none of these things have any place in God's new creation and the life of his people. Our lives, as I said, are to be holy and under the control of the redeemed spirit because the body does what the inner disposition compels it to do. We are and do what we think and what we believe. And as believers, the spirit of God, we should have that spirit of God controlling our body, compelling us to do those good works. Now, what follows in the last part of verse 5 and through verse 8 are what we call a type of chiasm or, or a chiastic structure. But in this case, it's not so much repeating words in a different or reverse order, saying one thing in this direction and coming back saying direction, reverse in the other order. Paul's doing something more powerful with this structure here. And he hones in on what I'm going to call three sections. Private sins the outcome of sins, and public sins. So private sins, the outcome of our sins, and public sins. So first, the private sins. The the chiastic structure, as I said, is, is seen in how Paul progresses from, first, the outward manifestation, 
going back into the heart to reveal its source. The acts to the motives. And then showing the outcome of these sins or the reasons to put them to death. And then he proceeds from the heart, the source of public sins, to their outward manifestation of what is seen in our lives, what happens in the church, what happens in the world, those motives, those internal motives, and how they result in verbal acts. Paul is being very specific here and telling us exactly what we need to put to death. He's identifying for us our enemies. Not an exhaustive list, but it is very intentional and specific. You can see a larger, more encompassing list over in Galatians 5.19, but here... The inspired word is focusing intently on two areas of our lives, those that are private and those that are public. And note here another aspect. As I've been saying, Paul is focusing on the individual first, where individual examination must begin. So what we see here in the last part of verse 5 is an intentional progression in what we are considering as private sins, those that bring destruction in the lives of individuals. So look closely here. He says, verse 5, Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Do you see the progression? Paul is going from that outward, although private in the action, as being kept hidden from others, It begins with immorality, progressing all the way back to its root, to the heart where it begins in idolatry. And what Paul has in mind here is the practices and attitudes to which all of his readers' bodily activity and strength had been devoted to in the old life. And what we, as those in Christ, must continue to put to death as we progress in sanctification. These aspects, these these enemies don't go away even for the believer. But you may ask or think, is Paul oscillating here in some ways? He's saying two different things. Saying that as a Christian, I've died with Christ, and having died to sin, yet still having to put to death old habits? He's not being inconsistent by any means. And any criticism like this does does an injustice to the reality of our union with Christ and the new life we receive from him. This is not just some abstract theological concept. We are, as believers, in fact, and in conscious experience, existing on two planes in this life. We are already being spiritually, belong spiritually to the age to come, while we are temporarily involved in this present age, united in Christ while temporarily living on this earth. And the impartation of the new life and nature by Christ does not affect the immediate annihilation of the old hereditary nature in us. No, that old nature persists like a dormant force. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is for us to, to destroy us, waiting to spring into action at any time. But as, as Abel, Cain was told, we must master it, and we must master it through Christ. So Paul begins this progression with immorality, a familiar word in the Greek. We've heard it many times here in Sunday school, porneia. It's referring to fornication, to sexual sin, 
and from where we get pornography, which, which is basically a writing or a picture about sexual sin and immorality. Its meaning is, is really very broad, and it includes all forms of illicit sex. And Scripture teaches us that any sexual activity of any type for, is forbidden outside the marriage bond. It's intended for the joy and the beauty between a man and woman united in marriage. And we see this particular sin and its word usage at the first of many lists in Scripture. In Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, in the Corinthian church in chapters 5 and chapter 6, it, it heads the list in Galatians 5 and is not proper for the saints according to Ephesians 5.3. And we recently studied in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 that as a part of our sanctification, we are to abstain to keep away, to flee from sexual immorality. And it's typically listed first because of its, the breadth of its destructive power. Not only is it a heinous sin against a holy God and our Savior, but it also destroys the body, the soul, the relationship of the one continuing in the sin. It destroys the sweet communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it destroys relationships and families beyond that as well as the person's own body committing the sin. And Paul continues, he goes deeper with the next enemy. He he looks at impurity, akatharsia. It's from where we get catharsis, which actually means cleansing. But we're not talking about cleansing here, obviously, because in this word, akatharsia, there's what we call an alpha privative. It's the A in front of catharsis. And that makes it a negative, the opposite. It is, it is filthiness. It is lewdness. It is impurity that goes deeper into the root cause of all the acts of sexual immorality. That of the evil thoughts, the wicked intentions of the mind, the pursuing that desire. And we read earlier from Matthew 5.28, what is intended and desired in the mind and from within the heart will proceed outward if left unchecked, unmortified. Impurity is one of the deeds of the flesh that we see in Galatians 5.19 that is not to be indulged in by believers because we are not called to God for the purposes of impurity. All battles with sexual sin begin in the mind, within the thought life. And if these thoughts are left unmortified, not brought into the obedience of Christ under his rule and sovereignty, when they're left to fester and grow, to pursue and proceed through our members and not immediately dealt with, it can and will lead to immorality, to sin. And just like the other members, the other enemies of this list, it points to the immoral state of the pre-Christian life. To the behavior of the man and woman whose actions are determined by his commitment to natural lusts. And yet it was and is all too easy for these, for any converts, to slip back into pre-conversion ways. And hence, this is why Paul is addressing to the church these specific warnings and commands. He continues now. This leads to an even deeper error in the heart, to passion to pathos, which is, in essence, a person who allows themselves to be dominated, to be ruled by their emotions, 
and cannot experience any tranquility or peace. And in this context, it denotes a very shameful, harmful passion which leads to sexual excesses. This passion is very closely tied to evil desire or epithumia, which by itself contains or conveys a very positive attitude toward the longing to see a Christian congregation. Paul uses it in several places. He speaks of this epithumia to depart and to be with Christ. However, here it's characterized in a very negative way with the addition of this adjective, evil, kakon, which it describes a wicked lust, a wicked desire that dwells in the natural man and then is manifested, if left unchecked, into impurity, into sexual immorality. And that final member, as Paul appears deeper and deeper into our hearts, that final enemy he reveals is greed or covetousness. Pleonexian, it's an insatiable desire to have more, especially in many ways what is forbidden. And it is the last one here, as it is the evil root from which all other members, these other earthly manifestations spring forth. It is this particular sin that James speaks of in James 4, 2, that is at the root and the sor- all the sorts of quarreling among the people of the church. Greed and covetousness has at its core such a gross, selfish desire above any obedience to God. It amounts to nothing less than idolatry. This, this covetousness is the root of all sin. It's what was expressed in the heart of the prince of the power of the air. I will exalt myself above the most high God. I will have his glory. But it reveals to us through its meaning and expression the perverted black heart that beats in all sin. It cannot be satisfied. It is is ever seeking the conquest. It is ever seeking to conquer, to have. Yet in every one of its pursuit, it pursuits it never finds true and lasting satisfaction it is insatiable and unsatisfied in every pursuit because it pursues everything and anything but god it worships what cannot satisfy the soul covetousness and greed are warned against in many passages as a means of security especially for those in the ministry there's a particular danger of it in the temptation to abuse one's position and to exploit the preaching of God's word for personal gain. So present in Paul's day, so present in ours. But simply put, when we sin, we are doing what we desire in our minds and in our hearts. Do we not? More so and in place of what God desires for us and for what God, who God is. This is self-worship. This is idolatry. Stephen Charnock says in his Existence and Attributes of God, quote, that every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart, an aim at the destruction of the being of God, not actually, but virtually. How foolish, how hopeless, how wicked, 
It is only by our seeking the things above and setting our minds on things above where Christ is that we experience the great antidote to covetousness. All of the things above found in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ are the ones that bring true contentment to our hearts. A contented person, one content in the fullness of Christ and abiding in Christ, the enjoyment of Christ, the delight in Christ, will not desire to violate another person sexually or covet anything or any position held by another. We can grow and learn as Paul had to learn, that we can be content in whatever circumstances we are in, whether it's economic, social, physical health, or marital state. Our true contentment is only found in Christ who kills covetousness through worship. And this will lay the axe to a root cause of sin is worship and contentment in Christ. Our second point, the outcomes of sin. Paul seems to take a brief interlude here, but not to relax or talk about something else, but he gives us two very powerful prophetic statements or reasons for putting sin to death. Having identified those members which formerly characterized the Colossians and those even in our present church among us, and by which we are still being tempted, Paul continues in these next two verses with what's been called or referred to as a prophetic present tense. I'll explain that here in just a minute. Verses 6 and 7. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And that last phrase is not in the original text. That seems to be a carryover from Ephesians 5, 6 by one of the scribes, which is still scripture. It's still worthy. Verse 7, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul here stresses the truth. He awakens us to remind us of the fact of the coming wrath of God. It is being stored up against all manner of evil, and of which will be surely and sorely visited upon all those who live and continue to live in such sins. Any sin, no matter what the sin, all sin deserves God's wrath. But the present aspect of Paul's because, his use of for statement here, is that God's wrath is so certain, it is as if the wrath has already arrived. Arthur Pink says in Attributes of God, his wrath, God's wrath, is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against all evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin, and it will come. God's wrath and displeasure against sin is a very simple analogy. It just came to mind. It's like a powerful magnet that attracts iron. Unbelievers will certainly experience the full force of God's eternal wrath unless they repent from their sins and turn to Christ and we know from Romans 1.18, this wrath is already being revealed from heaven. It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All unbelievers who do not have faith in God through Christ 
have the wrath of God abiding on them right here, right now. It is not some distant, maybe might sort of kind of happen sort of concept. It's fullness of this truth is that anyone outside of Christ who may be present in this room right now, they would go and perish in eternal hell should they die when they walk out this door. They will be in an immediately in hell awaiting the final judgment with no escape. There will be no plea bargaining. There will be no court-appointed attorneys. There will be no waivers, no pardon sentences, no escape. This wrath is, on all, is all on the account of the sin that is present in all of us. But for the believer, we see in this both a great deterrent from sinning, but also the great mercy of God that through Christ, this wrath is no longer a threat for the believing child of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And for the Colossians and for any true believer, we see this once now antithesis. It is, it is how the, the indicative mood here characterized their past behavior. You walked past tense. You lived past tense. But then Paul follows with a very powerful imper- imperative. Put away, he goes on in verse 8. In reality, this kind of conduct is a thing of the past. It is what and where we once walked, how we behaved, where we once lived, what used to be our disposition in life. But praise be to God that through the death, through the burial, through the resurrection of Christ, he has provided that means of grace, the only means of grace through faith to rescue those who will come to him, seeking his life, seeking his rescue, seeking his salvation. Since we have been made rich in Christ, why would or should we ever venture back into the poverty of sin? How can, how can a new creature in Christ, again, act like an old one? Confess with Paul then. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? I, I can picture the look on his face. May it never be! How can we who died to sin still live in it? The public sins. The second part, second branch of this chiastic type structure is focusing on the public or the social sins as these are committed toward one another, toward anyone, friend, spouse, church member, enemy, children, parents. Here we see Paul's progression in identifying these five sins in a reverse order from those in verse 5. He begins here in the inward motivations, what's at the heart, how it progresses out to the speech, the actual evil acts manifested in words. Again, not exhaustive, but oh, so very specific. He says in verse 8, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Paul is saying here the indicative of the once-how antithesis, put away, put them all aside, be done with. Apotithemi, these sins are to be put off like an old set of stinky, worn-out clothes that don't fit, and they're no longer suitable to you. They have really 
gone out of fashion, if you will. They are no longer how you are identified now as a child of God. They are fundamentally the repulsive habits of a sinful past, and they must be discarded. One commentator likened it to, as many of you new parents know, a very nasty diaper. You aren't going to hang on to that. You aren't going to hold on to that and enjoy that. You're going to discard that thing as fast as you can. It's the same thing here. The life of sin, these realities must be put away now. The anger, the wrath that were at work in the heart and mind before salvation go together. Orge and Thumas, they form that deep, that, that smoldering, resentful bitterness in the heart that results in that sudden outburst, that harsh word, that speaking, like going from a settled feeling of hatred in the heart to that tumultuous outburst of passion toward another. As I said, whether family, friend, foe, but destructive in nature, destructive to any and all human relationships, and especially dangerous in the church who testifies of Christ Jesus as their head. We know from James that we are to be slow to anger, slow to speak, because the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God, meaning any anger from the heart does not accomplish what is right in God's eyes. For many outside of Christ, living with a resentful heart and attitude that feeds their anger, they don't understand why they're alive. They don't understand why they're suffering in this life. They don't know how to handle difficult circumstances, so they lash out in wrath. No matter what it is, it sets them off. Should not be so for the believer. Closely associated with and on the heels of these two Paul reveals another manifestation. It's malice, or kakia, which is best described as as a vicious nature bent on doing harm. Uh, Really a, a nature that is driven towards trouble with no care of any moral implications whatsoever. It's basically an attitude of, of base wickedness. The intention of the heart is filled with malice toward another, will subsequently express itself in evil speech, abusive language, destructive sarcasm, and from our list, slander or blasphemia. Many don't realize that this type of speech, this this slandering one another, this verbal abuse, is also blaspheming God. He is the creator of men and women and children, and these words are seeking to destroy them. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, spoke directly against this in the Sermon on the Mount, warning us about the names or the destructive words we use towards one another, that these very words expose the wickedness of the heart, and they are worthy of supreme judgment and of hell itself. Any type of abusive speech, any foul-mouthed abuse is a reality of many unsaved, but it is not to be coming from the mouth or from the tongues or the mouths of believers. But what does James tell us in James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10? But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. 
from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. We are to cast off any remaining habits of filthiness and any silly talk and coarse jesting. These are not fitting or proper for a redeemed soul, and our mouths should be filled with thanksgiving and praise and worship. No matter, no matter what we are facing in this life, no matter what is coming against us in accusation, persecution, false accusation, whatever confrontation, either from friend or from enemy. For we must remember, as Christ reminded us, every careless word we speak will have to be given account of in the day of judgment. Let this truth by the Spirit be a watchful guard over our tongues and mouths. Finally, Paul gives a final and pointed exhortation with a very significant present imperative. Stop lying. The Scriptures could do a great study on this, provide an opportunity to study all the lies spoken by many in the history of mankind. I forget how many. I counted, I think, 14 in just the first 20 chapters of Genesis. We're prone to that. However, it is a strong summary to say that all lies began with Satan himself. He is the father of lies, and when we as believers speak a lie, whether it be an embellishment, stretching the truth, half-truth, white lie, whatever that is, a partial cover-up, adjusting the truth to make ourselves look better, whatever, however we classify it by our natural reasoning, it is imitating the father of lies, Satan himself. Believers in Jesus Christ, of all people in this world, should tell the truth. We should speak the truth to one another in love as our Heavenly Father speaks truth. And we are to do it from a renewed heart full of love. Trust and transparency and communication in, in all forms, all various forms, are vital to, to a healthy, projective, maturing relationships in the body of Christ. And this carries over into the world, too, does it not? The combined force of all that Paul is saying in these five verses today points to our need as Christians to not only be conscious of the many ways we sin against God and against other people, but more than that, Paul is exhorting us to be deliberate, to be ruthless in the way we deal with sin. We can be victorious through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit when we call upon him from a needy, repentant heart in our daily struggle against sin. We are called, as Owen puts it, to starve it. We are not to feed our anger or resentment or cater to sexual lust or covetousness. We are to be being preoccupied with Christ, with his word, with the fullness of his spirit and the fullness of his grace that he faithfully provides every new day. Why? Because we are his, and we no longer 
belong to the domain of darkness. We have been predestined. We have been called. We have been justified. Now we're a part of a heavenly kingdom here on earth. We are owned by Jesus Christ the righteous. And with him one day we will be glorified with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its eternality, its transcendent of t- transcending time, its current and ready and able application for us today. But Father, unless our hearts are prepared, unless our hearts are humbled, unless our ears are listening, and Lord, even that, we depend upon you. We look to you for that help to hear these things. And unless you provide the grace and the power through your spirit, sin will continue to crouch and to attempt to have its way in our lives. So, Father, may we see ourselves as soldiers of the cross. May we see ourselves active in war against our remaining enemy. But may we be mindful and looking forward with an eternality in our thoughts, Father, to the victory that has already been won in Christ. For we know that sin is defeated, Satan's head has been crushed, and death is just but a passageway to eternal life. But Father, we ask, we humbly ask that you would instill in our hearts this ever-present daily reminder and reality of our warfare against remaining sin. And with that, Father, Lord, with that, fill, fill our hearts in a delight and a joy of knowing you, of realizing and living in who we are in Christ. Oh, that the sin no longer has dominion. He has been dethroned. But we have life, we have hope, we have joy that this temporal life is but a handbreadth. It will pass in such a quick measure. Oh, Lord, how I know that. But, Father, may we, like, like we see in physical eradication of cancer, may we desire to see that sin eradicated and defeated in our lives so that you will have all glory so that our lives will be a reflection of you in love. May we speak the truth in love. And Lord, as we've seen here, may our heart, Lord, this is what we're after, may our heart be so transformed that covetousness will be destroyed, Father, that anger will be crushed, that thanksgiving and praise and contentment in Christ will be thrown, enthroned upon our hearts. And thank you for your Spirit's help and power and presence and being dispatched to us and revealing to us who you are, speaking to us through your word. Oh, may he be such a present, precious help and friend in our time of need. We ask all this, Father, in the name of your precious Son and to his glorious namesake. Amen.